Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. Hi, I'm Michael, and it's my great pleasure to be reading the Bible for us tonight. Uh, Tonight's passage is Genesis 29, verses 1 to 35. Right, so Genesis chapter 29, starting at verse 1. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked, Is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet her. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him back to his home. And there Jacob Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I will work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, 
and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave her, um, his servant Bilpah to his daughter um, Rachel to be her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely now my husband will love me. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I have not loved, he gave me this one too, so she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Evening all, my name's Ron and uh, it's great to be with you. I'm one of the ministers here and uh, Michael, thank you for reading that story. It's a complicated, complex story as have all these stories in Genesis been that just reminds us that we are looking at this messed up family of God. Uh, Some of you know a little bit about my own family but just to give you a few details uh, before we get into this, I uh, am married and uh, my wife Julie and I have two children, Jacob and Emily, son and daughter. Jacob's married uh, and he has two of his own children. Emily's engaged and that's our family at the moment. I'll tell you this because my daughter Emily recently gave me a card that said this. And that card reminded me of the constant and light-hearted battle between children to gain the status of favourite. And that's certainly been true with my two children. Uh, it's been a lifelong battle for them and maybe this is the same in your family. All sorts of scheming and trickery used to try and get either myself or Julie to affirm one of them as the favourite. But it has been light-hearted. My daughter actually always has known and knows beyond doubt that uh, she is 100% my favourite daughter. But sometimes light-heartedness goes too far. Other times it's not light-hearted even in the first place. I'm aware of families uh, who have struggled because wills left by parents have showed favouritism and that's caused all sorts of tension amongst siblings. I'm aware of siblings for whom favouritism wasn't some jovial thing that they played with but something that was very real that they had to live with each and every day of their lives. Favouritism can be driven or or desired because of power, attention, social capital, money or a range of other things. But however it comes, favouritism quickly becomes divisive and unhealthy and leads to relationships eroding away. And this is exactly what we see in God's messed up family. The story that uh, if you caught up last week by watching one of our other services, or, or uh, you would know, if you didn't, the story last week involved Isaac and Rebecca. 
and they played out favouritism against each other with their favourite kids, Jacob and Esau. And that story didn't end well. In today's story, Jacob plays favourites as well. And what we learn in all of this is that while the world sides with favourites, God extends his favour to those the world leaves on the side. The story that Michael read to us tonight starts with a family reunion. After his long search for a wife, Jacob came across his relatives who he had been looking for. And you would think maybe this was going to be a happy occasion. A long lost family member turns up. But in this family, we know enough to know that flesh and blood more often makes for conflict than harmonious celebrations. Jacob is besotted by Rachel. I mean, he can't take his eyes off her. He's caught the love bug, so much so that he tells her father, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, that seems very strange to us. But you have to remember that this is played out in a context and culture where a bride price is normal. Yet even where a bride price is normal, Jacob is offering to pay more than double what the bride price would be. He really must be in love. Because of Jacob's love for Rachel, the seven years that he agreed to work felt like days. And before long, the wedding is coordinated, the ceremony is conducted, the feast is consumed, and all that is left is for the consummation. At which point Laban deceives and tricks Jacob. But when evening came, we read, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. I have so many unanswered questions right here. And feel free to put them on Slido and I'll just say, yeah, I don't know. But like, Laban, what were you thinking? Like, how did you think this was going to play out? And Leah, really? Were you part of this? Were you happy to just go along with this? And where is Rachel in all of this? Surely she's not sticking her hand up saying, hang on, something's, got, something's not going right here. And then... The most obvious of all, perhaps, Jacob, like you didn't know? (laughs) What on earth is going on? We might feel outrage at different parts of this story and what's happening, and particularly at Laban's deceit. But if we're familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau, we also recognise the irony of Jacob's fury. See, Rachel's father does to Jacob exactly what Jacob did to his own father, deceives and tricks him. Well, another agreement is made and a week later, Jacob marries Rachel and works for Laban for another seven years. The text points out the problem. It says, Jacob made love to Rachel also and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. Two wives, one much loved, one less loved. 
favoritism. And it won't be long before the, the fires of favoritism is, is fanned into the full-blown flames of jealousy. The story goes on. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. Jacob sees Rachel's external beauty and favours her. God sees the unloved Leah left on the side and extends favour to her. Leah's first three sons reflect the anguish, or the names of the first three sons reflect the anguish that she had at feeling unloved, at feeling left to the side, the result of favouritism. The first son, Reuben, the Lord has seen my misery, is what that name means. The second, Simeon, the Lord heard that I am unloved. The third one, Levi, at last my husband will become attached to me. Can you hear the pain of what's going on for Leah? Even as she has children, she longs to be loved by her husband, but she does not experience that love. She watches her sister be treated as the favourite and experiences the pain that comes with that. By the fourth child, her focus seems to have changed. Perhaps realising that she can't have the love that she wants, she names this fourth child Judah, saying, this time I will praise the Lord. The focus of her attention has changed. And then we read, that after this, Leah stopped having children. Clearly, Leah's inability to conceive from this point for a period of time is not the result of anything that she has done or has not done. She praised the Lord on the birth of her fourth son. If you have, have had or will have trouble in bearing children, please know it is not because of something you have or haven't done wrong. God doesn't operate with karma. Rather, that difficulty in childbearing is a difficult and devastating part of the broken world in which we live, something we rightly grieve and lament together. Well, Rachel's jealousy of Leah increases and she demands that Jacob give her kids, that he give her children. I figure it's not like they hadn't been trying. But now they decide they'll successfully build their family through Rachel's servant, Bilhah. Rachel sees these children as her own and she names them in ways that show us what's going on for her too. The first one she names Dan to show that God has vindicated Rachel. The second is named Naphtali to show that, that she, Rachel, has been victorious in her struggle over Leah. Now, you might have questions there too. Four kids, two kids, how are you victorious? But this is what's going on for her. She feels now validated, vindicated and victorious in this struggle that she's been having. 
as we as the story goes on, more sons are born uh, to Leah's, Leah's servant, Zilpah, and then to Leah herself, before finally, in what seems to be the climax of the story, God remembers Rachel and gives her a son. And Rachel then says, God has taken away my disgrace and names this child Joseph, meaning add, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. When the names of the 11 sons that are up there and Benjamin, who will be added in time to come, are understood in their context, they serve as a constant reminder of the detrimental impact of deception, favouritism and jealousy that so ingrained this family and led to family toxicity that ripples not just for a generation but for generations to come. Favouritism loves one at another's expense. While our situations may be different to Jacob's, I don't think there's anyone in the room who's married to two wives at the one time, our situations might be different. The challenge to love in a world that plays favourites, in a culture that helps us, that persuades us to lean into favouritism, is no less significant a challenge. In the New Testament, in the book of James, James connects favouritism with a lack of love. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin. James also challenges us. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? The world sides with favourites while God extends favour to those the world leaves on the side. Now, it's easy for us to give more time and attention to those that we have natural affinities with, whether it be children, parents, friends, church family. And attraction and similarity are not wrong in themselves. Jacob is not condemned for being attracted to Rachel in the first place. The problem was that once he had two wives, he needed to love them both, and he didn't do that. When attraction and similarity become favouritism, it leads to a lack of love for the other. Now, relationships are really complex, and you will understand this in the world that you live. You have some friends who, you're, who you have more affinity with. How do you ensure that that affinity, that natural affinity, doesn't become favouritism and thereby show lack of love for others? As parents, Julie and I had to work this out very early on, or very early on we worked out that our two children are very different. And we, we discovered that we actually couldn't treat them the same that we had to have different approaches to how we would raise them. And that meant that things would look different to them in our actions towards them. And at times we had to have what were 
slightly awkward conversations about that reality so that they would understand that we loved them but that sometimes we acted differently because of who they were. Even as young adults in the last couple of years we've had some conversations about that with them. And I'm sure if they were here they they could tell you how imperfectly we did this. But our goal was to ensure that even when we had to act differently towards them, that we didn't act with favouritism towards them, but showed love to them both. How do you show love to the people around you? How do you show love to those in your family, to those amongst your friendship groups, to those in our church family, who you might not have that natural affinity with, but are called to love Nonetheless, let's go back to the story where Joseph's birth seems to be the climactic part of the story. And we know, those of us who are familiar with Genesis know that much of the rest of Genesis focuses on Joseph and God does amazing things through Joseph. Yet, there is another story working itself out here, the story of God's promise. See, before Jacob laid eyes on Rachel, God had laid his eyes on Jacob. On his journey to Haran, God met Jacob in a dream and reiterated his promise, the one that he'd made to Abraham and to Isaac, that through Jacob and his descendants, God would build his family. And through Jacob and his descendants, God's promise to bless the world would come. Now, no doubt, Jacob longed for this promise to be filled through the one that he loved, Rachel. Yet, to unloved Leah, a seemingly insignificant fourth son is born, Judah. At the birth of Judah, Leah says, this time I will praise the Lord. Now, Judah, if you read ahead in the story in Genesis, is a little bit of a scoundrel as well, but by now that kind of doesn't surprise us in this family. But in years to come, one of Judah's descendants, another little-known forgotten one by the name of David, becomes king of Israel. He wasn't the human choice for a king, but God's choice. With God telling Samuel, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The world sides with favourites, while God's favour extends to those the world leaves on the side. After David, an even greater king comes in the line of Judah, Jesus. Listen to how he is described by the prophet Isaiah. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. We held him in low esteem. The world sides with favourites, while God extends his favour to those the world leaves on the side. Isaiah goes on to say, 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. By the wounds of the one who the world left on the side. The one who came from the unloved Leah. By him we are healed. Jesus, unloved, despised, rejected by the world lives in the love of God and demonstrates the love of God for us. And when you may feel unloved or left on the sides in this world due to favouritism, due to deception, due to any other reason, the cross of Jesus reminds you that God loves those the world deems as unlovely. When your hearts ache to be loved or to feel favoured, the cross doesn't resolve all of our human heartache, but it gives us a new place to start, a place embedded in the deep, rich and unchanging love of God. At the cross, we see that we're not left to the side by the world, but rather that Jesus has come into the world to be by our side. At the cross, worldly favouritism is frustrated and those on the sides have access to God's favour. The world sides with favourites while God extends his favour to those the world leaves on the side. Do you feel unloved? Look to Jesus, the one the world despised, who does not despise you, but loves you. Do you struggle with favouritism? Look to the ones on the sides in our community, in the places where you work, live, move, And ask yourself, how can I show the love of Jesus to the ones on the side? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we esteemed you not. And we know while that uh, is true of humanity in general, also so true of us that there are times when we don't esteem you and we confess that to you and we thank you that your love extends to us regardless. Lord, sometimes we feel hurt and betrayed, we feel left on the side by this world. We thank you that the love of Jesus reminds us that we are deeply loved that that love is unchanging. We praise you for that. We ask that you might enable us to so live in Jesus' love for us, that we might bring love and light to those who the world leaves on the side. For the glory of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.
Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Penn Hills 6pm congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus, to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmats.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.